forward on my knees. I walk forward on my knees. I walk forward on my knees. Welcome once again to Walking Forward, the podcast of the Edmiston Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity, bringing you Kingdom Voices, speaking to Christian endurance on the margins of today's local and global societies. I am your host, Karen Ellis, and this one is personal. This episode brings us face to face with Ms. Corey Porter, a young woman with whom I've had the pleasure of walking forward with for about 10 years now. She is now the CEO of the U.S. offices of Christian Solidarity Worldwide, which is an international network of affiliates in the U.K., the U.S., Mexico, uh, Nigeria, and Southeast Asia. And together, they stand with those facing injustice because of their religious beliefs, and um, they uphold religious freedom around the world. It's a fantastic ministry. I can't wait for Corey to tell you more about it. Corey, in her life before this, served as a campus minister on the campus of Princeton University. She finished her MA in theological studies at Princeton Theological. And she says she's compelled by her Christian faith to stand with and advocate on behalf of those who've been harmed by injustice around the world and at home. She tells us that her vision is to promote and uphold freedom of religion or belief for all, both domestically and abroad. She's born and raised in Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, Ms. Porter graduated from the University of Mississippi, where she studied public policy, sociology, and religion to get her BA in liberal studies. Oh, I thank you so much for welcoming me. And Corey, it is wonderful to have you here uh, on Walking Forward with me. Like I said, this one is personal. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Dr. K.A. Ellis, no, I'm yes. happy to be here. Oh, it's coming, oh, it's coming. <laughs> Still working. All right, all right. I, I, um, I just, I love that we have had the chance to walk through life together, yes. but you being made CEO brings us actually in together as colleagues yes. in a work that we're both passionate about. And so I... I just can't wait to unpack some of that for you. But before we do, now I have I have lots of questions for you. <laughs> but before we get into your work at CSW, um, I want to unpack something that's one of the pillars of the Edmiston Center, which is um, uh, your passion for Christian discipleship. You are one of those people that believes that you should be reaching one arm forward and one arm back, right? Yeah. And yeah. you really, you really have embodied that through your work at Princeton. Who discipled you, and uh, how have you been discipling others? Karen, I think the question is, who has not discipled me? <laughs> I was there. It was a lot of us. <laughs> you know, who has not poured into my life over the last fourteen years of my faith? Like it's just been so many. Um, I, I want to give a quick shout out to Beth Paul. Uh, my mm. sophomore year in college, I met Beth. I was rough. Oh, I was rough. And I said, hey, would you be willing to disciple me? I was meeting with her and some women from uh, Presbyterian Church um, in Oxford, Mississippi. It's called College Hill. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, Beth, would you, would you be willing to disciple me? And she gave me that, uh, that Christian no. I didn't know it was a Christian no. She said, <laughs> let me pray about it. And I said, oh, oh you know, I'm new. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll wait for you to pray about it. So I doubled back two weeks later, like waiting wait to see if you're gonna disciple me. She's like, okay, I, I think we should probably talk about this. <laughs> 
And so for the last 13, 14 years of my faith, me and her have been tight. Um, but then also names that people would know, according to your podcast. I mean, you got to think about you and Carl came in right at that time. I was a student at Reformed Theological Seminary and you guys just came in and loved me, like loved me um, in that same type of love, almost that parental love. But I also feel like, Karen, over the years, we've just grown more and more closer together. And I feel like that's really healthy in discipleship that you go from more of a, um, a babe in Christ and you grow along the way. And that's something that I feel like you were really intentional with me about um, mm -hmm. is making sure I was created um, in godliness, but also growing in independence. You, do you remember when I first asked you to disciple me? I don't. I remember first meeting you in the basement of Redeemer Presbyterian yes. Church, right? <laughs> I got to say yes. Presbyterian Church, but folks also don't know Redeemer <laughs> Press. Um, yeah. But I don't remember you asked, were we, sit, were we in the bottom of a hotel, like in the lobby of a hotel, and you asked me, is that where we it happened? In the bottom of something. I don't know if that's a good thing. I know, <laughs> right? We always meet in the bottom of somewhere. Were we in, were we in the lobby of a hotel? I can't remember exactly, but I remember what you said to me, and it's always stuck with me, and it's, it uh -oh. was really true, and I didn't know okay. at the time. You said, Corey, I would be willing to disciple you for this season, but discipleship is best done life on life. And you said, I'm committed to you in this in-between season to helping you to find someone else as well. And I said, wow, like that really ministered to me. And you remember who you push, who you um, like gave me over to? Uh -uh. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Mandero's wife. Focalina oh, Mandero's. yes. Focalina. Focalina. Yes. And then we continued our relationship. Like we, we continued our relationship. But then also I just had this network starting to happen of mentors. Mm -hmm. So now we have this Dutch, um, Dutch, she was Dutch reformed, but then she's also married to a Brazilian man, woman discipling me. So you immediately brought the world into my discipleship very quickly. That's what you did, Karen. You didn't. Mm. Yeah. So so you think about her and, and then the last couple of people is like Kevin D. Young and his wife, Trisha. Kevin gave me my first ministry job up in Michigan as a campus ministry a director for women, um, associate director for women there at University Reformed Church. And they, I didn't know how important it was to come home to a, to a family. And yes. Kevin and Trisha gave me that. At the time they had six to seven. Now they almost got 10 to 15. Yeah, it's, it's, 15 it's a whole team of people. Yeah, I know it's a lot of them. <laughs> made me a part of their family. I was in Thanksgivings with them, Christmases with them. Like they really poured into my life. And then mm -hmm. the last one I just want to mention again, can't get into mentioning too many people, um, <laughs> but that would be um, uh, Christy and you and Christy and you yes. You know, those are the people that you text. What do you text them when I get to them? When I go from your house? Up yes. to theirs? What do you say all the time? I'm like, I'm sending her your way. <laughs> Here comes Corey. I'm sending yeah. her up. And yeah. then you, you text Chrissy one time. Did you get the package? <laughs> yeah. Precious cargo. Precious cargo. Yeah. So many of you guys have poured into me and developed me. So I'm just thankful. I'm just so thankful. Mm -hmm. Well, it really does take a lot of folks, doesn't it? You know, for just, I mean, I think about the number of people that it took to disciple me, that it's taking you know, as I continue, I mean, we don't really stop the process as we grow in wisdom, but you know, there was some, everybody had a little piece of the puzzle. There were some people who helped you with finances and some people yes. who helped you with nutrition and some people who helped you with relationships, you know, and so everybody brings a piece of the puzzle. So how do you know in your work with, um, as you're reaching back now, let's talk about how you're reaching behind you to bring other disciples forward because one of the things that um, I require when I disciple somebody is that they have to be discipling somebody within a short period of time, somebody else. 
That's so good. in your time with um, the Princeton students, what was that like? And how do you know when somebody's ready to disciple somebody else, you know? No, that's, that's good, Karen. I think what I, what I failed at early on was I didn't set the expectation that I needed you to then therefore reach out to others. Um, and that's really important because I believe for me in discipleship relationships, they're very intimate. So what you and all those mentors I just mentioned taught me was the intimacy that you should have in discipleship. Well, when you have a 19-year-old or 18-year-old and they're all you know, when you start to separate yourself a little bit and you start to ask them to create more disciples and they didn't know that was part of the process, they start Mm -hmm. to think you're becoming a little bit more distant. And Mm -hmm. so it's really important early on to kind of set that expectation. Hey, do you see me as your disciple? I'm being discipled by Karen. Karen is discipling me. Now I'm discipling you and my expectations for you to disciple others. So I, to your point, that's really important. Um, but your initial question was, um, how do I know it's time for them to kind of move on? Honestly, I mean, they're kind of, kind of tricks of the trade. Can she read the word mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like brightly? Can she mm-hmm, understand mm-hmm. God's word and read it through? Um, as she processes through passages, is she able to see the context of the passage? You know, mm-hmm. be able to understand the, um, the 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 dynamics of the scripture and how they interfold with other scriptures. Um, is she able to rightly apply it to her everyday life? And mm-hmm. that becomes more of a heart issue, right? So it's not just head, but how is she, um, how is it circumcised into her heart? Um, mm-hmm. Is she sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Um, because what you don't want to do is push somebody off too fast to start discipling other people. Because right. discipleship is a modeling exercise in some real ways. And mm-hmm. so what's going to happen is that if you have a person go off too young, before they're ready to kind of really go off and pull somebody on their wings, um, they're gonna they're gonna create they're gonna wreak havoc in someone else's life. Ooh. You know, that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. I've had um, to 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 mediate some conversations between the women I disciple and the ones that they disciple, and part of that um, was immaturity and ways in which they may not have been ready to have people come under their wings. Sure. So yeah, so I would say a head, a heart forward, and then just yeah, the desire to move toward other people. Those are real ways that I'm like, okay, have you considered who is in your orbit, um, maybe a two years younger you, that may be wanting someone, that discipleship would be best at this time for them? Mm-hmm. That's good. I uh, left a lot of collateral damage when I was a young believer, uh, you know, all zeal and no knowledge. Uh, and, and I just thank for God for the power of the Holy Spirit and his ability to go behind and clean all that stuff up. Won't you he know. do it? And won't won't he, he do, do it? Today. To this day, <laughs> Karen, he won't do it. Yes, it's true. It's true. So, you know, the last 10 years, the 10 years I've known you, um, you and I have spent working through scripture and Christian life together. And um, that, I think that's a really traditional understanding of discipleship. Um, most people would understand discipleship that way. I don't think it's something that we in the freer world have done really well. Um, but I think we're learning some hard lessons now. There's a lot of spiritual malformation out there. Um, but I think that's pretty much how people would understand traditional discipleship. But it seems to me that just kind of moving into talking about your role at CSW, um, there was a whole lot of like serious Holy Ghost discipleship going into you in the work of global rights advocacy, which I, I wasn't, you know, I was doing what I did in human rights and, you know, freedom of religion and, you know, um, working with the persecuted and the underground church and Christian Christianity and endurance on the margins. But I wasn't really aware that you were watching that work as closely as you were. So with that in mind, uh, can you just trace the thread for us through your life 
through to becoming a human rights advocate. Looking back, what experiences would you say have shaped you into the to step into the work today that you're doing with CSW? Yeah, I guess, I mean, people ask me that, particularly as someone who has a background in campus ministry for the last 13 years. They're like, so how did you, what, how are you becoming a CEO yeah. girl? Yeah. <laughs> and, well, you know, but it, it, a lot of times with the Lord, things look like a hairpin turn. But you actually realize, no, this is actually a bend and he's actually been preparing you in all these other, it's like, you know, Mo, it wasn't no accident Moses was, you know, on the backside of the desert with the sheep. Come on. Right. Because he was going to be leading, uh, you know, yeah. a billion people yeah. <laughs> that yeah. act like no. sheep. Right. So, yeah, do not, so yeah. Do, yeah. There's a, there's a word in that. Just don't despise what God is doing in the early mm-hmm. stages because you don't know how he's going to bring that out. That's um, right. Early, early on, Karen, um, I, I was not a believer at the time. So it was kind of interesting. I did not confess faith in Jesus um, at this moment in my life. I was around seven or six and I would get up in the middle of the night and I would sneak to the TV and I would watch, you know, BT and I watched different shows I wasn't allowed to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just remember um, there would be this, uh, this, this one thing that would come on late night, maybe in like a PBS special, and it would be about King. Martin Luther King, and it would just show, the way the narrative would show would just be this incredible man of so much faith, so much mm-hmm. heart and love for people, uh, particularly our people who were being persecuted in the States. And I was like, Lord, I want to speak on behalf of people who are being hurt. I, I just remember crying about this at seven years old, crying to the Lord and just being just really passionate about it. And that was like some of my early prayers that I actually remember praying to him. Again, mm-hmm. even though I didn't really know, know God. Um, and then I remember at the end of the PBS special, narrative is interesting. They kind of made it seem like racism was over. So yeah. so I, I started crying because I was like, I'm not going to be able to do anything anymore because all the injustice is gone. And so, <laughs> yeah, I literally thought that as a kid, even though oh. I'm from Mississippi, praise God. Um, so... <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> okay. Um, I hear you. It was, it was funny to see that. It was funny to see yeah. see that shape out. But he put that in my heart as a little girl. And because mm-hmm. of that, I, you know, you know, my background and my testimony of, um, you know, getting in a lot of fights, getting kicked out of school, being on drugs. But a lot of that was just anger and rebellion against things that I saw that was not right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where to properly place it. And so right. I became a Christian. Right. Um, first year of college, right before uh, going into my freshman year at Ole Miss. And I, I just got on fire and I, I just loved everything about him. And to your point, much like if you look at the story of Moses or other people and throughout scripture, the things before God begins to call you, he keeps in some ways right. and then he transforms. And so when you see Moses upset about the injustice done to the um, to the Israelite uh, person and he what does he do to the Egyptian? He kills him. Now, that was probably not the best way to handle that. Right. But but that was that pre Moses before he gets to leading people through the wilderness. Similarly, I believe the, um my experience growing up was God was had something in me. And then when I became a Christian, it just it just flipped over. And again, things had to be worked out in me. But what happened was, is that I was on the campus of University of Mississippi, and this was one of those moments where you start to see that advocacy and that injustice and that narrative of human rights being birthed in me, um, was when I was on the campus of University of Mississippi for years, being being raised from in Oxford, what you see is something called Colonel Reb. He was our school mascot. 
and he was a depiction of an old plantation, white plantation owner. He had the big plantation hat, he had the cane, and everyone loved him. Um, that is, all my white friends loved him, but the black people, we stayed clear. And it was just a constant reminder that you're not necessarily part of the community here. Hmm. Um, and I just felt like that wasn't it. I felt like that that wasn't going to happen for me um, while I'm here at the Ole Miss. Yeah. And so I look around, I'm like, this is causing more fraction than it is together. Now, um, no one would touch the mascot situation because the FBI had been alerted because there was so much protest around it in the past. Um, so the University of Mississippi, um, they didn't want to touch it. But as a student activist, as a student leader, I decided to do activism. And I got many people together. I looked at the student body population and I said, what will best serve these people? What will best serve the population of people here? And you got to think about it. It was Greek life is huge at Ole Miss. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm going to the Greeks. And they're the ones, the Greek, particularly um, the white Greek uh, sororities and fraternities held dearly to him. So I started informal and then formal uh, meetings with sororities and fraternities and talking about the issue of race. And it just started to develop out where you start to ask questions like, when was the first time you knew that you were white? When was the first time that I knew that I was black? And with these small groups of inner, um, like inner race people, it would be the, uh, it would be the, um, I'm sorry, the gospel choir. And then it would be like the, the traditional white fraternity talking about these issues. You start to think, start to see things develop. When the mascot came up in the conversation, um, one of the girls, she started to cry. It was a white uh, sorority girl. And she said, I just never knew that Colonel Reb was that divisive. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. So what, what was mm -hmm. happening in all that story um, is that God was starting to soften my heart for the other person in human yeah. rights. So it's not yeah. always about just the victim. It's also right. about the persecutor in some ways. Right. And right. helping you to be able to see where God is calling you to be able to create narratives of peace mm -hmm. and be able to create, create, create um, narratives of civility. And right. so those were ways that I saw God um, come through throughout my life and start to yeah. shape me. And then I went into campus ministry for, uh, wow, for, like I said, 13 years altogether. And one thing that I saw God um, doing in me and what he's still working in, into me in this moment is I can be kingly. I can create a schedule. I can, you know, I can, I can, I can be a CEO in that way. Um, I can be prophetic. I can speak truth to power. But Karen, you've known me and developed me over the years um, priestly. Praise God is is a work for me, <laughs> um, and, you know. And so, in campus ministry, you have to love women. You have to love the people you say that you're standing up for because eighteen year olds don't don't care about your position in your job. They want to know, do you love me? Yeah. And what the last thirteen years has done in me is that I love, I genuinely love the people that I speak for, and that I advocate for, and that I spend my time on. And so I just think all of those elements when I'm reflecting and, um, and thinking about how God has uniquely postured me for this work at this time um, in my life, I think about those things. And those are my remembrance stones as I go through mm. to mm -hmm. keep me. Yeah, those, oh, raise that Ebenezer girl. Um, you, no, those stones of remembrance are really important because, uh, you know, one of the one of the most, I think, compelling things uh, that I think a lot of people in the freer world miss is uh, about you know doing work advocacy work for folks in the um, uh, in in closed countries is the amount of uh, Holy Spirit born because it doesn't come through the flesh Holy Spirit ability to forgive wow. the person who is being unjust towards you yeah 
And it really is something that's born of the spirit. Um, it's not something that you can plan. Once you re- once you, it's not, it's not, it's one of those things that you realize is a grace of God for you to, ex- that's been given to you to extend to others. Um, and our flesh hates it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, so it's, it's, you really have to be kind of steeped in that kind of forgiveness in order to enter into this work. Uh, because otherwise the world doesn't make sense. The world, this the world of human rights advocacy from a Christian perspective doesn't make sense because you want revenge, right? Yeah. So tell me about CSW. You've mentioned them so many times. And, and uh, tell me, I can just feel the love that you have for your yes. team. I can feel yes. the love for you have for the work that they do. Why, do you, why are you so passionate about CSW in particular, how they do what they do, and what yeah. exactly are they doing around the world? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was saying, Lord, uh, what are we going to do? I, get, I got laid off from campus ministry because of the pandemic. I said, I know that you've called me into human rights, into religious freedom. I said, how am I going to be able to get into this work? And what God did was quite remarkable. He actually got CSW to come to me. And so I think for me, it was that CSW chose to be a part of God's story and what he was doing in my life. So I think my heart tie, my my spiritual tie to CSW is because I really believe that the work that CSW is doing is one from the Lord. And two, it's just the proof is in the results and in what they do. For the last 43 years, they have been part of human rights, a, human, a Christian perspective on human rights that is for religious liberty around the world. And so, um, but when I was um, laid off, uh, a woman named Anna Lee, she's one of their co-heads of advocacy, came, came to me and she said, hey, I was reading through a book that we both were uh, featured in, uh, Christine Relay's book on the, um, what was the name of it that we... His testimonies, my heritage, Psalm 119. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. So we, we were featured in that book. I did it because Christy made me. Amen. Because she's a mentor and that's what you do when they tell you to do things. And I did it. I, I didn't do it out of love of it. I just did it because I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And by faith, I did it. And the Lord rewarded that because Anna Lee was looking through to see who could sit on their board of CSW. Um, and when me and her talked, we just hit it off. And we both felt like it was a Holy Spirit moment. So Anna Lee talked to the CEO in the UK, which is Scott Bauer. And she talked to Merv um, Thomas, who is the founder president. And when I got in a conversation with them, it was just clear that mm-hmm. God's vision and what he can do through the U.S. for international religious freedom is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm excited about it because they saw God and they responded. Mm-hmm. And I think you want to be in work, particularly in human rights work, with people who see God and respond. Yes. Because you can get in, as you know, into a lot of people who like the fame, they like the posturing, they like to feel important, but are they about the mission? Like, are they actually about the persecuted people? And one of the parts of the advocacy team, what they do to make it more or less about just human rights of, oh, this person is persecuted. They're intentional about building relationships with people on the ground. And so even if they've worked on a case for five, 10 years and they never get credit for it, they make sure that those persecuted people are taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I just look at that and I'm just like, Wow, like that is what the gospel has called us to. Yeah. You know, that you have rewards in heaven. We're talking about people's lives right now and they get the seriousness of it. And so I just, and when you see the persecuted people respond to them, I think it's really important to kind of see the posture of the persecuted pe- person because they'll tell you re- whether or not they're being cared for by the organization. Right. That's and right. When I look at the persecuted, mm-hmm. the persecuted people are who tell me that, wow, like CSW loves people genuinely. Yes. So I, I want to be a part of work where God is there. 
you know, yeah. that's where I want to be. No, that's exciting. You know, I think the distance between, um, you know, a an actual event happening on the ground um, to an individual or a group of people, and the distance between that moment and uh, us finding out about it through the media, you know, there mm. are so many hands that pa- mm. that 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 story passes through. You know, whether it's advocates or um, you know legal aid on the ground or uh, you know, people giving testimony, at, you know, to yeah. the United Nations or to human rights yeah. groups or whatever. You know, there's so many people involved that we don't see. And, so you know, many. human rights advocacy is extremely complex. We have a course at the Edmiston mm-hmm. Center um, called A Christian View of Human Rights. And we mm-hmm. really delve into, you know, the foundations of human rights, how different um, how different cultures have framed, how the, the, how the concept of human rights developed, because people weren't always aware that people yeah. should be treated a certain way, right? And different yeah. different uh, areas yeah. of the world develop different understandings. And, you know, it's been a progression for just about every geographic region you can imagine. But then also how language and concepts and rights are changing rapidly mm. every day. And so, you know, it's, it's really complex. It's a lot to keep up with. I, I love my students that they're like, oh my gosh, this is like, Matroshki, like those Russian dolls, you just open one yeah. up and there's another one more, inside. More, more, more. It's can, so much. Can it's they so get much. more? Can they get smaller? Yeah. Yes, they can. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 I've got to have you, have you come in and, and lecture to us sometime about just your experience. Well, I want to come and learn. I want to come and learn. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like an amazing course. <laughs> well, where, where is your focus going to be in the coming months? I know you've mentioned to me that the injustices uh, happening in Northern Nigeria, another extremely complex situation. Uh, Northern Nigeria is weighing heavily on your heart. What are you going to be doing in the next few months with CSW? Yeah, so Nigerian, the Northern Nigerian conflict currently is going on, but what actually really caught my heart and, and when I was starting to develop and pray about, God, what are you calling me to in this first year? Who in the persecuted community are you calling me to? Um, it was a story, as some people know it, some people don't, but it's a story of a 14-year-old girl by the name of Leah Sherbu. And I'm sure you know the story, uh, Karen. I, I couldn't remember it actually when I first came on board. It was actually the tagline of Michelle Obama, bring our girls back. Mm-hmm. It was from when the campaign that she did that actually made Leah kind of more, more familiar to me. But um, back in, uh, it was four years ago, the Boko Haram came into a school and abducted 110 schoolgirls. And of those 110, when they were taken away, um, Michelle Obama got wind of it. She started a campaign, bring our girls back, put pressure on Nigerian government to be able to bring them back. All the girls, all 109 came back. Not one, all of them were came back. But the one that would not came back was Leah. Now, why did not, why did Leah not come back? Um, When they were getting ready to put her into the truck, what ended up happening was the Boko Haram pressured her and said, we need for you to renounce your faith of Christ and believe in Allah. And Leah, at 14 years old, said no. I mean, could you imagine a 14-year-old yeah. child having saying the no courage, to that? Having the courage having of her the conviction. Courage, yeah. Having the courage of her conviction to say that. I mean, I'm 32 years old. Um, you know, you're you're 23 year old, 23 years old in that it's, way. But it says a lot about her parents. Yeah. 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 It says yeah. a lot about her parents. And mm-hmm. then and I think for me too, is the story continues because they also say said that the girls who were returned said that they said, but Leah, just pretend, just pretend to believe in Allah. And she still said no. And so I look at a young woman like that, 
a young girl like that. And I was like, look at the conviction of her faith. Look at the Christ that I love, that she loves, that she's willing to be able to say, I will live for him and I will die for him at 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Now you mm-hmm. see a child like that and that pushes you and it compels you to be able to move for her because mm-hmm. she stood for our savior. Mm-hmm. And so Leah to this day by the Boko Ram is known as a slave for Christ. And she would, they said they won't be able to give her ransom. You can't pay for her to be given away. You can't take her. And so for me, it's just like, I, I refuse to believe that that the body of Christ, particularly the body of Christ in the U.S. with as much power and influence and and just, just yeah, just ability to be able to move toward her, mm-hmm. that if we really galvanize the church together, that if we really wanted to push forward, that we too could be able to help Leah to be, get free. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for me right now, that's my focus is Leah Sherbu. And mm-hmm. so our organization has been, kept up with the family over the years. We've worked with the family over the years to make sure she's fine, to make sure their family is taken care of. Um, one of our, um, our co-heads of advocacy spoke with the family and the family is intentionally desiring for CSWUSA to lead out and to push this initiative um, to Biden and to the, um, the whoever's gonna be named a new international religious freedom ambassador to be able to push this up so that there can be real pressure pushed on Nigeria for her freedom. Mm-hmm. So for mm-hmm. me, honestly, it's, it's Leah. That's who, when I go to sleep at night, that's who I think of. That's who my prayer life is surrounded around. That's who my fasting life is surrounded around. It's her freedom. Mm-hmm. Oh, praise God for that. Uh, yeah, I think what a lot of people who are, um, you know, vaguely familiar or unfamiliar with the case, what they don't realize is that um, that's uh, that those kinds of kidnappings are actually a part of a larger uh, pattern of kidnappings that have been going on over the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, and that, um, that you know, there have been young ladies stolen, there have been uh, young boys mm. stolen. Uh, and of course, that in and of itself is actually a smaller part of a much larger picture of uh, land issues, of uh, religious, you know, it, religious conflict. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's 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 never just one thing, right? Yeah. And so I'm yeah. so glad that you all are taking um, taking Leah's case on to bring awareness yeah. to a lot of the conflict um, that's going on in that region. So I'm I'm glad you're yeah. fasting and praying about it too, because people yeah. think that's the last resort, and I'm like, no, that's yeah. that's where we start. You know, yeah. that's, that's not your covering. That's, that's your yeah. covering. Yeah, we don't they make give a you direction. Move. We don't make a yeah. move without fasting and praying. So, um, tell me this. Um, you know, the Edmiston Center, you've watched us develop it, and we're about yes. understanding and living the Christian life on the margins of the world societies. Yeah. What do you think we here uh, in the freer world can learn about justice and religious freedom from those uh, for whom it's it's often elusive? Yeah, it's something you kind of share with me over the years, and I didn't quite understand until I got into the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said, Corey, we're not ready. And you would just repeat that over and over again. You'd like, Corey, we are just not ready. And you would start to tear up a lot. And I, I didn't understand because I didn't know what you had seen. And what you have seen is Christians around the world who are persecuted, who stand for their faith against all type of different odds. I mean, they're, they could lose their wives. They can lose their children for converting over from Islam to Christianity. Um, they can lose their lives. Um, they, they can lose their family members, their children. Uh, they can be def- um, you know pushed out for divorce from their, their parents. So all of these different ways in which Christians are persecuted around the world, what I believe that the church in America can learn is a steadfast resilience and hope in Jesus. I was talking to former international ambassador Brownback, Sam mm-hmm. Brownback, mm-hmm. and one of the things he said, I said, hey, I, as I read through these articles and I'm praying, 
I said, I'm not gonna lie, I feel weighted down. I feel like these atrocities are a little bit too much to be able to handle. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, Corey, you're right. You will see some things. He said, I have seen some things. I've heard some things. He said, but my belief in Jesus grows so much more. He says, my love mm -hmm. for the Lord becomes so much more real. And I said, why is that? He says, because I have contact with the persecuted. So there's something about the persecuted and their stories and their narratives that will help shape and edify and get the church ready in the States mm -hmm. to resemble Christ more. And so I, I, to your point, like to your question, what does it look like? I think it looks like us listening. I think that's the biggest point that the church in the United States can take away is for us to listen and to learn from these brothers and sisters around the world who have so much to teach us about our savior. Amen. Amen, Corey Porter. I am, yeah. I am so proud of you. I am proud of what you. God is doing in you and through you, uh, talking with you. I'm reminded of how John the Evangelist starts his letter mm. and encourages mm. the new generation coming up mm. uh, from the elder to the beloved Corey, whom I love in the truth. <laughs> he says, he says, beloved, I pray that all may go well mm. with you and that you may be in mm. good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when reports come to testify to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no mm. greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And the Holy Spirit is sending you on this journey in a manner worthy of God. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's the Karen. book. That's oh, the book. And, and John amen. says, it's my pleasure to support people like these. And it's an honor yeah. um, that we've been made fellow workers for the truth. Thank you so much for blessing us with your thoughts today. Yeah. Thank you, Karen, for inviting me. I love you so much. I love you too, girl. Well, that does it for this episode of Walking Forward, a podcast of the Edmiston Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity. I hope more and more we all experience this discipleship process in such a way that we can echo John's words over and over. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. How are we, we going to live the gospel in this new day and age? The Edmiston Center has an entire curriculum and certificate program dedicated to answering this question. And it's informed by those who live that reality every day around the world and here at home. Prayer, discipleship, wisdom, stealth, transformation. Learn more about us at www.edmistoncenter.org and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks for walking forward with us and with the Edmiston Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity.